0: We come to the end of this series, at least season one of this series. Season two will be at the start of 2015. But after five months, because uh, we started this back in October, after five months, we've reached that moment whenever David becomes king of all Israel in a kind of ultimate rags to riches story. The shepherd boy. From Bethlehem is finally declared king by the leaders in all Israel. He's about 37 years old at this stage, and he will reign for another 33 years. His destiny, if you like, has been fulfilled or is being fulfilled. The waiting is now over. But before we read about his coronation, uh, there's one more chapter to cover. In the lead up to that. And so last week, if you were here, we left David lamenting over the death of Abner. Abner had been his sworn enemy. He was Saul's right-hand man who, along with Saul, had hunted David down for years. But Abner, it seems, switched sides. And so he was in the process of helping David to become king of all Israel. He was kind of speeding up this process. But as Abner left David in peace, we read last week that Joab, who was David's right-hand man, Joab murdered Abner. He stabbed him in the stomach after implying that he simply wanted to have a private chat. And as a result of that, David cursed Joab. And then he led the people in this kind of public outpouring of grief as they buried Abner. So let's pick up the story again in 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's page 308 in the Red Pew Bibles, if you want to follow on. But here's how the first verse reads in the New King James Version. I know in the the Pew Bibles it's the the NIV, but here's how it reads in the New King James Version. When Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth. When he heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. Now whenever anyone loses heart or loses courage, for whatever reason, it's never a good sign. Unless someone kind of steps in, unless somebody offers a new perspective, that person who has lost heart and who's lost courage is going to find life difficult. And Ish-bosheth, who was Saul's son, he had been made king by this guy Abner in the north. But whenever this puppet king, as we said he was, whenever he hears that, that Abner has been murdered, he hits a wall. You see, Ishbosheth clearly relied on Abner. And even though Abner has now appeared to break ranks, Ish-betheth, Ishbosheth, having heard that he's dead, now feels vulnerable, he feels weak, he feels threatened, he feels scared. And part of the reason for this is that God had not featured in Ishbosheth's rise to power in the north. There was no reference made to God for his anointing. Ishbosheth had trusted in and depended on a man in getting to this position and he relied on this man to keep him in this position and therefore whenever this man disappeared and wasn't coming back Ishbosheth's world started to fall apart and it just says he lost heart and he lost courage psalm 146 verse 3 says don't put your confidence in powerful people there is no help for you there It's so important that our trust and our confidence is not misplaced. That we're not relying on man, a man, men. We're not relying on for our hope or for our future. Because man's way is doomed to failure. If that's who we're relying on, on, if that's who we're putting our confidence in, it's doomed to failure because at some point, the ways will come off. And then where do you turn? And for Ishmael, we say this was the problem. Abner was gone. Where was he going to turn now? He had nowhere to go. He relied on this man. He was empowered by this man. And so, as a result of him disappearing, he's now lost heart. And then this domino effect kicks in because Ishbosheth's energy, his strength, his leadership has disappeared. And therefore, we read at the end of that first verse all Israel was now troubled. So, Ishbosheth's not in a good place. All the people of Israel are not in a good place. Back to verse 2. In verse 2, we're introduced to a couple of brand new characters in this story. Two brothers, Banna and Rekab. Brothers who were leaders, it says, in Nishbosheth's raiding parties. And that's all we're kind of told about them at this point. Because then we get to verse 4. And if you have got an NIV in front of you, or a particular sort of translation of the NIV, you'll notice that verse 4 is in brackets. Because here we read that Jonathan, and this kind of verse seems to come from nowhere, and it doesn't really go anywhere, but in verse 4 we read that Jonathan, who's now been dead for about seven years, but it turns out that Jonathan had a son called Mephibosheth. And what the narrator tells us here is when he was five years old, he was dropped by his nurse or by his nanny. And he was left disabled. That's all we're told. And you kind of wonder, why is that there? We do read about Mephibosheth again, but it's not for quite a few chapters. And so maybe the only reason for telling us this info now is because the narrator wants us to realize and appreciate there actually isn't anyone from Saul's immediate family who is physically able to succeed ish if this downward spiral continues. Kind of need to register that thought just for the moment. So then we go to verse 5. And as I say, it it just goes nowhere at this point. We're just left there. Back to verse 5 where we pick up the two brothers again. And it seems that as leaders in ish set up, they must have had relatively free access into the king's presence, into his house. And so we read that it's noon, it's 12 o'clock in the day, and the king's in bed. Now it could have been that he's taken a rest, or maybe it's a symptom of his loss of heart. As one commentator has said, to those whose courage has failed, bed can be a tempting place to stay. Sleep can provide a kind of refuge. Let's now read verse 6 and 7 to find out what happens next. And they came there, that's these two brothers, all the way into the house as though to get weight. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, the king was lying on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him, killed him, beheaded him and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. This is the third person to be stabbed in the stomach in as many chapters. This is the third person decapitated to date. Goliath, Saul, and now Ishbosheth has lost his head. See, reading scripture and engaging with these stories is not for the faint-hearted. But why did they have to do this? why did they do this? Were these brothers not meant to be on this king's side? Were they not meant to be leaders in his raiding party? So why have they done this? Well, whatever the reason, loyalty and respect has clearly gone out the window. But what's absolutely fascinating is as you read on, you discover that they somehow thought they were doing a good thing. They actually thought they were doing the right thing because we read here that they didn't just escape and do a runner and disappear into the night. They intentionally went somewhere carrying Ishbosheth's head. There was method in their madness. Look at verse 8. When they arrived at Hebron, they presented Ishbosheth's head to David. Luke, they exclaimed to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of your enemy Saul who tried to kill you. Today, the Lord has given my lord, the king, revenge on Saul and his entire family. So here were these two brothers standing before David, head in hands, literally. And they were convinced or they believed that what they had just done was laudable. It was commendable. It was creditable. And so what they were doing is they stood there. They were waiting for the well done guys. They were waiting for the pat on the back. They single handedly or as a double act had decided to head down the revenge route. They decided you know something. We're going to take vengeance into our own hands. And so they stood there having done that. Totally expecting David to be delighted with them. And if nothing else. What happens next stands as a graphic and powerful and disturbing reminder that it is never right to take matters into your own hands. It's never right to seek or take revenge. As we read from Romans last week, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay back, says the Lord. It's none of our places. Never is to take revenge. And even when it seems right, it's always so wrong. Even when you think good will come out of this, evil can never be condoned. As these two brothers quickly discovered. Because it becomes apparent just how massive a mistake they have made. How much of an error in judgment they have made. Let's read on to here. Verse 9. But David said to these two brothers. The Lord who saves me from my enemies. And that comment is so insightful because it clarifies. David was just putting it out there. This is who my trust is in. This is who saves me. It's not up to you. It's not up to anybody else. The Lord who saves me from my enemies is my witness. Verse 10. Someone once told me Saul is dead, thinking he was bringing me good news. Now, if you've been following this series, you'll probably remember how an Amalekite arrived on David's doorstep one day, carrying Saul's crown and his armband and sharing the good news that he had put Saul out of his misery On the battlefield whenever Saul had asked him. Thinking he had done the right thing. And we all know what happened to the Amalekite. Verse 10 tells us. But I seized him. Says David. I killed him at Ziglag. That's the reward I gave him for his news. How much more. Try to put yourself in these two brothers position here. As he says this. How much more. More, should I reward evil men who have killed an innocent man in his own house on his own bed? Shouldn't I hold you responsible for his blood and rid the earth of you? Can you imagine them I'm standing there, Ishmael's head in their hands, thinking they'd done a brilliant thing. Here's what happens, verse twelve. So David ordered his young men to kill them. They cut off their hands and feet, and hung their bodies beside the pool in Hebron. Then they took Ishbosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb. End of chapter. End of two brothers. It's a rather shocking scene to see amputated bodies hanging in public disgrace. It's why I said last week that I believe Second Samuel chapter 4 should come with a classified warning or at least a parental advisory sticker. And one of the key points that you've got to make out, and we all believe, at least I hope we all believe, that all scripture is God-breathed. Every little detail is God-breathed and is useful at some level And so one of the key points or a couple of key points that you can take out of this is that no point, no point in this whole story have we found David grasping or grabbing at the throne before its time. Even when others around him were trying to press fast forward, David, we'll help you out. We'll take people out. We'll sort the situation out. We'll get you onto this throne now. David said, no, I'm waiting on God's time. I'm not waiting on man's time. I'm submissive to God's time frame. I'm not operating within yours. And therefore, I'm prepared to wait. And the second thing that comes out of this is that David remains loyal to the family of Saul right to the bitter end. Do you know, there was a time in Everett David's life when he had made a promise to Jonathan that he would never harm any of Saul's family. And David now comes through in this promise because you see, David's a man after God's own heart. When god promises something he sees it through when david promises something he believes in seeing it through and therefore, therefore at no point does david cause or celebrate the death of saul nor his key people like abner nor his own flesh and blood like ishbosheth plenty of others like an amalekite and joab and these two brothers decided to do things differently decided to do things in their own terms in their own time scale but not david And as this story reminds us, choose to go your own way. Choose to do your own thing. Choose to tamper with the purposes of God. Choose to speed things up when it's kind of like not your place. And you may find that the consequences are extreme. With every choice comes a consequence. The Amalekite made a choice, extreme consequences. Joab made a choice, extreme consequences. Two brothers made a choice, extreme consequences. Consequences. Let's move on into chapter five, just the the first few verses, because now the time has come. This is it. And the leaders of Israel, it says at the very first verse, they make their way to Hebron, and they now give three clear reasons why David should become the king of all Israel, and they're all in verse one. And here they are to start with. Listen. You're our flesh and blood, your family, David. Secondly, even when Saul was king, your leadership ability was obvious. You, you were the ones who led us in battle. And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, you're God's man, you're God's choice. God had told you this day was coming, and now it's arrived. And then after years of waiting, and it could be something like 20, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know it could have been something like 20 plus years of waiting. David is officially anointed king over all Israel. His rise to power is complete. And it then says he becomes more and more powerful. He goes from strength to strength for one reason and one reason only. We'll get to that in a second. But the first thing that David does as king, the very first thing, is he sets up his power base. He establishes his power base in Jerusalem, where he reigns, as I said, for 33 years, and he renames this place the city of David. But in verses 6 to 8, we read how David took the city. And there's info in these three verses that is deeply troubling. And it has sent Bible commentators scurrying all over the place, spilling liters of ink, and trying to get their heads round what is meant by these three verses. For churches who use the lectionary to inform their Bible texts week by week, I think it's really interesting how when it comes to Second Samuel. Chapter five: The lectionary encourages you to read First Samuel or Second Samuel chapter five, verses one to five, and then nine to 10, it omits six to eight. And it's understandable, given how verse eight reads. See in verse six, the Jebusites, they're the people who kind of must have been living in or occupying Jerusalem. They denied David access to the city, saying. Even the blind and the lame will repel David. Will stand against him. David, who is a clever military strategist, he comes up with a plan. He decides to send his troops into the city through the water system. But then our reading should come to a screeching halt. Look at verse 8. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Hmm. So, where do you go with that? Now, I'm not going to try to explain the possible interpretations. And honestly, if you do want to go away and look into this, there are numerous interpretations here as to what this means. But whatever way you look at it, and taking the three references together to the blind and the lame that are in those verses, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that David had a bit of a problem or a prejudice against certain people with certain disabilities, or at least against certain people with certain disabilities From certain people groups. Whatever way you read these verses. They're unnerving. They're slightly offensive actually. And so what I want to say is two things. One. This is another example of how scripture doesn't airbrush its heroes. It paints an honest picture of them, warts and all. It doesn't duck the less honorable aspects of their lives. It isn't afraid to tell their whole story. Secondly, the blind and lame might have been excluded from coming into the house. And again, what did that mean? What did that mean? Many Bible commentators read this and they they, they believe that this was the kind of View of saying when it comes to the temple being built, which wasn't yet, but would be done in Solomon's time. When it comes to the temple being built, the lame and the blind were excluded from coming into worship. And again, those of you who have kind of like stayed with me, you'll be remembered. But hang on a wee minute. What, what about Mephibosheth? What about the wee kid that had been dropped when he was five and was lame and was Jonathan's kid? And yet David somehow has a problem with people like this. Well, if you fast forward to the one who was born of David, the Messiah, and you listen to these words from Matthew 21 where it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. What you do discover is that the perfect example, the ultimate hero, was totally inclusive. And he loved and valued everyone. But back to David as we close. I know I haven't answered anything there as far as David's prejudice was concerned, but I, I honestly do not know how to answer it. But back to David as we close. According to verse 10, and this is where the whole series comes to an end, this is where his rise to power finishes. And then in season two in 2015, we're gonna, we're gonna look at David's fall from power as we track his story from Second Samuel 5, 11 and following. But according to verse 10, David went from strength to strength, he became greater and greater, he became stronger and stronger for one reason and one reason only, and it was this, because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Hearing that God is with you, knowing that God is with you changes everything. And throughout scripture, you often come across this idea So in Exodus chapter 3, as Moses tries to get his head round what God is asking him to do, we read, God answered him, I will be with you. In Joshua 1, as he contemplated stepping into massive shoes and leading the people into the promised land, he's scared. He's scared about what God is asking him to do. And God says to him, look, be strong and be courageous, for I will be with you wherever you go then in Jeremiah 1 as the prophet protested because I can't speak I'm too young people won't listen to me God said to him don't be afraid of the people for I will be with you this theme comes back time and time again and whenever the Messiah is born what is the name he's given it's Emmanuel which means what God is now with us And then whenever Jesus was returning to the Father, he reminded his disciples, every single one of us here this evening who are following Jesus, he reminds us, I am with you always to the end of the age. The reason for David's rise to power, the reason that David is now king, the reason that David is an all-time hero of the Christian faith, despite his weaknesses and failings, The reason that he is remembered, the reason that David has this reputation of being a man after God's own heart is why? It's because God was with him. And so for those of us here this evening who do follow Jesus, this is our story. It's not just David's story. God is with us. That's what we firmly believe. And therefore, that is not only a word of encouragement, I hope, but it's a word of empowerment. It changes everything that we can be people after God's own heart because God's with us. We can leave here and walk into a new week and live out the words of Jesus as we were thinking about this morning. Put them into practice. Why? Not because we can do it in our own strength, but because God is with us. David's God is our God. And therefore, we can trust in him. We can serve him just like David. Despite and amidst all the twists and turns, all the successes and failures, all the delays and distractions, we can walk the walk. We can't walk the walk, the tail walking the walk, the tail of the We can. Why? Because God is with us.